0: month, we have a Santa's sack full of festive verse, seasonal stories and magical music. Contemporary Christmases and Yuletide yesterdays all tastefully decorated and hanging at the foot of your bed in this December edition of the tinsel-trimmed Worcester Talking Magazine. Santa's little helpers today are Christine. Hello. Gloria, in excelsis of course. Hello. And surrounded by the toys he found hidden at the back of the wardrobe, Barney. Hello. JP's in the back room cutting out decorations while precariously perched up on the pointiest part of the Christmas tree is me, Stephen. Our introductory music came from the choir of St Philip and St James Church in Hallow. And if that was the Hallow way, this courtesy of Barney, is Stanley Holloway.
1: It was Christmas Day in the trenches in Spain in Peninsular War and Sam Small were cleaning his musket, a thing as he'd ne'er done before. At rifle inspection that morning, Sam had got into disgrace for when sergeant had looked down the barrel, a sparrow flew out in his face. The Sergeant reported the matter to Lieutenant Bird then and there. Said Lieutenant, How very disgusting! The Duke must be told of this here. Eh? When the Duke were told of the matter, he said, I'm astonished I am. I must make a most drastic example. There'll be no Christmas pudding for Sam. When Sam were informed of his sentence, surprise rooted him to the spot. 'Twas much worse than he'd expected. He thought as he'd only be shot. And so he sat there all the morning, polishing barrel and butt, while the pudding his mother had sent him lay there in the mud at his foot. Now, the centre that Sam's lot were old in ran around a place called Badajoz, where the Spaniards had put up a bastion, and, oh, what a bastion it was. They pounded away all the morning with canister, grape shot, and ball, but the face of the bastion defied them. They made no impression at all. They started again after dinner, bombarding as hard as they could, and the Duke brought his own private cannon, but that weren't a apence a good. The Duke said, Sam, Sam, put down thy musket and help me lay this gun true. Sam answered, you best ask your favours from them as you give pudding to. The Duke looked at Sam so reproachful. And don't take it that way, said he. "'Us generals have got to be ruthless. "'It hurts me more than it did thee.' "'Sam sniffed at these words, kind of sceptic, "'then looked down the Duke's private gun "'and said we'd best put in two charges. "'We'll never bust Bastion with one. "'He tipped cannonball out of muzzle. "'He took out the wadding and all. "'He filled barrel chock full of powder, "'then picked up and replaced the ball. "'He took a good aim at the Bastion, "'then said, "'Right, O Duke, let her fly.' The cannon knight jumped off her trunnions and up went the bastion, sky high. The duke, he weren't half elated, he danced around trench full of glee and said, Sam, for this gallant action, you can hot up your pudding for tea. Sam looked round to pick up his pudding, but it wasn't there, nowhere about. In the place where he thought he'd left it lay the cannonball he'd just tipped out. Sam saw in a flash what had happened by an unprecedented mishap. The pudding his mother had sent him had blown Badajoth off the map. That's why Fusiliers wear to this day a badge which they think's a grenade. But they're wrong. It's a brass reproduction of the pudding Sam's mother once made.
0: A novel use for a traditional Christmas pudding. From decorating Christmas trees and hanging up stockings to pulling crackers and eating mince pies, we celebrate the festive season with a range of rituals and traditions, yet we seldom stop to ask why. Discussion of the origins of such holiday customs tend to stall with wasn't it all invented by the Victorians or the Germans? Or was it Coca-Cola? In fact, many date back to ancient times and have been influenced along the way by religion, pop culture and the commercialisation of Christmas. For example, do you know why we have Christmas trees? Well, Romans used fir trees to decorate their
1: temples during Saturnalia, a feast in honour of Saturn, the god of agriculture, and the predecessor to Christmas – In Northern Europe, people planted cherry or hawthorn plants or created pyramids of fruit or candles. Evergreen trees were thought to keep away evil spirits and illness and were put up during the winter solstice, the shortest day of the year, to remind them that the spring would return. It
2: is thought the first person to bring a tree indoors was the German theologian Martin Luther Walking through a forest, he was so taken by the beauty of stars twinkling through the pines that he took a tree home and attached
1: candles to each branch. Germans decorated their trees with edible goods and glass decorations. Tinsel was originally made in Germany from thin strips of silver. Christmas trees made it to Britain from Germany in the 1830s. and In 1841, Prince Albert set up a tree in Windsor Castle. In 1846, the royal family was sketched standing around their Christmas tree, after which the practice became very fashionable. The
2: story of Father Christmas starts with St Nicholas, a bishop who lived in Myra, in what is now known as Turkey, in the 4th century. He had a reputation for giving to the poor and being kind to children. Legend has it that St Nicholas dropped a bag of gold down the chimney of a poor man who could not afford his daughter's dowry. He also dropped a bag of gold for the second daughter. The father tried to find out who this mystery benefactor was and when he did, St Nicholas begged him not to reveal his identity. Word soon got out and when anyone received a secret gift, it was always thought to be St Nicholas. But in the 16th century, the stories of St Nicholas grew unpopular in Northern Europe and new images of Father Christmas, or Old Man Christmas,
1: circulated instead. It was the Victorians who rediscovered the stories of St Nicholas and Thomas Nash drew a series of cartoons of him living at the North Pole with a workshop for building toys and a large book with the names of naughty and nice children. Santa's suit is not red because of a successful advertising campaign for Coca-Cola. The red and white actually derive from the colours of St Nicholas. St Nicholas was drawn throughout history in various forms, thin,
2: intellectual and even frightening. It was Coca-Cola's adverts that created the image of the rotund, jolly, white-haired man that we're all familiar with today.
1: On the subject of Christmas food, goose, boar and peacock have all been popular Christmas meats over the centuries. But nowadays, turkey reigns supreme as the traditional Christmas Day meal in the UK. Legend has it that King Henry VIII was the first English monarch to eat turkey on Christmas Day, popularising it among the upper classes after the bird was imported from America. Mince pies were known as Christmas pies and were
2: initially made of meat, usually mutton, and spices. Samuel Pepys wrote about them, but in his time they were much more savoury than we are used to now. In the 18th century, the pies became sweeter with the
0: import of sugar from slave plantations in the West Indies. The first handmade wooden advent calendar was created in 1851, and by the 20th century, the first printed advent calendars had been created. Gerhard Lang later added small doors to the advent calendars in the 1920s. By the late 1950s, chocolate advent calendars were popular and nowadays the cardboard Christmas cut-downs contain a variety of treats including beauty products, children's toys, gin and even cheese. This festive practice originates from Germany and dates back to the early 19th century. The season of Advent itself begins on the Sunday that falls between November the 27th and December the 3rd and symbolizes the coming or advent of Christ.
2: Boxing Day has its origins in the practice of giving presents and money to poor people. One legend has it that the wealthy gave tradespeople and servants boxes of food and fruit as a seasonal tip. Others believe that boxes full of alms to give to the needy were left in churches over the Christmas period. And on Boxing Day, these were
1: collected and distributed. Cards and crackers. In 1843, Sir Henry Cole, a civil servant and educator, and his friend John Colcott Horsley, an artist, produced the first Christmas card. Horsley's illustration shows the Cole family raising a toast the design was printed on cards with cole successfully publishing and selling 1000 copies for a shilling each sales increased when the halfpenny post was established in 1894 crackers are a victorian invention
2: created by a sweetmaker who wanted a novel way of selling his wares after sales slumped the story goes that tom smith was watching a fire crackle and thought of how the packaging could crack. The sweets were replaced by trinkets and jokes, and paper hats were introduced. They were initially sold as Cossack, named after Russian Cossack soldiers who would fire their guns in the air while on horseback.
1: Our contemporary idea of Christmas as a family-centred day was born in the Victorian era, when the focus was shifted to children, Today, admittedly, Christmas parties and New Year's Eve stretch out the festivities, but December the 25th remains the pinnacle. But before the mid-1840s, Christmas used to be a boozy affair lasting for weeks. Dr Annie Gray, a food historian, recalls a 14th century description of Christmas as a season of gluttony, harlotry and lechery. Where did it all go wrong? An example of the season's
2: hedonism was the medieval Feast of Fools, a celebration that would occur in December. It was a time when people could undergo a brief social revolution and ignore the norms people were expected to abide by. The debauchery included blasphemy, songs, dancing and feasting. It was very much about adults sleeping with inappropriate people, Dr Gray says. It was basically really, really alcoholic.
1: A very Merry Christmas.
0: In the 17th century, it was banned. Tom Learer would have had plenty to satirise in those days. He has a somewhat cynical view of today's commercial Christmas too.
3: Christmas time is here, by golly, disapproval would be folly. Deck the halls with boughs of holly, fill the cup and don't say when. Kill the turkeys, ducks and chickens, mix the punch, drag out the dickens... Even though the prospect sickens Brother, here we go again On Christmas Day you can't get sore Your fellow man you must adore There's time to rob him all the more The other 364 Relations sparing no expense Send some useless old utensil Or a matching pen and pencil Just the thing I need How nice doesn't matter how sincere it is nor how heartfelt the spirit sentiment will not endear it what's important is the price hark the herald tribune sings advertising wondrous things god rest ye merry merchants may ye make the yuletide pay angels we have heard on high tell us to go out and buy So let the raucous sleigh bells jingle Hail our dear old friend Chris Kringle Driving his reindeer across the sky Don't stand underneath when they fly by
0: Christine with Tom Lehrer's contemporary Christmas Carol Garrison Keillor is an American humorist whose description of his childhood Christmas is frankly fantastic in the most literal sense Barney
1: When I was a boy and lived in Lake Wobegon with my family and my dog, Buster, Christmas arrived in our house at the last minute. Other families got their trees up and strung them with lights a week or two early. And night after night, I stood barefoot on the cold bedroom floor, looking out the window, studying other people's happiness. Their Christmas was correct, according to Good Housekeeping magazine. Perry Como's Christmas special and a glossy book that Aunt Marie sent us called Christmas Ideals. It featured colour photographs of tremendously happy people in fabulous homes resplendent with lights and music and love, in greens and reds as deep and shiny as jello desserts. Standing in the dark, admiring the windows along our street, I imagined how happy those families were as they cheerfully completed the many joyful tasks of the season – Baking, decorating, rapping, singing, dancing, being nice to each other, etc. Our home was more like little Benny's miserable hovel in The Christmas Gruel, a true story of an orphan in the East London slums, a gift from my mother. The pictures in that book were drawings, Benny begging for pennies, Benny huddled in a heap of rags in the snow, etc., the book was supposed to make me grateful for my blessings, I guess, but to me it was autobiography. Our family was of two minds about Christmas. My mother loved it, and my father thought it was silly. People throwing money away on a bunch of junk they don't even want, and two days later it's packed away and forgotten, he said more than once. All oh, words to that effect. It was a pagan Roman holiday at heart, he pointed out to us, and had no basis in Scripture whatsoever, and true Christians had no business celebrating it. So Mother held off on Christmas until the 23rd, to make it a smaller target. And she made a point of buying us some gifts that Dad would approve of, such as warm socks, underwear, and good books. The Bible, for example, was Dad's idea of a good book, and books about the Bible or books in which the characters believed in the Bible, such as Little Benny, who, burning up with a fever, whispered, I see Jesus, and there is Mum and Dad with him, and expired in the last paragraph. In my own hierarchy of gifts, books came toward the bottom, below underwear and slightly above a bad cold. Gift books embodied our Christmas conflict between the urged give gifts and the fear of waste, thus the giving of a precious gift that would inspire one and broaden one's vision, thus the expensive leather-bound volume of C.H. McIntosh's commentary on Ephesians that would gather a dust on the shelf for the rest of my life. Or another volume in the adventures of the Sugar Creek Gang, the band of intrepid Christian boys who solved crimes and then preached to the criminals and led them to be born again. Mother gave me those books, but she wrote from Dad on the card, and she told me to be sure to thank him for them. Mother wrapped them, but she didn't need to. I could see they were books by the edges of the covers under the paper. I felt all the packages as soon as they appeared, weighing them in my hands, squeezing, shaking the ones with loose parts. But books? I didn't bother with. Books were books. I opened them first on Christmas morning to get them out of the way. I opened them with a flourish for Dad's benefit. Oh boy, I wonder if this could be what I think it is, I said, knowing exactly what it was. I smiled a disgusting fake smile and shook my head in fake wonder... Dad, thanks, I said. Philippines and Thessalonians, I'll have a complete set of Macintosh in just a few years, I guess. I paged through old C.H. for about a minute and a half, pretending to glean some of the shinier pearls from the great man, watching Dad with one eye. Mmm, I said. Mmm, mmm. I set the tome down reluctantly, gave it a last, warm, appreciative glance, and turned to the obligation of opening a large box of Lionel train cars, including the automatic cattle loader I'd circled in the Sears catalogue. I knew that I shouldn't show too much interest in toys. They were the junk that people threw away money on that Dad was opposed to. Good books, such as C.H. Mackintosh's were a repository of wisdom, a treasure for a lifetime. Books were lamps to light our pathway in this dark world, and toys were mere playthings. It was all right to have a few, so long as you didn't enjoy them too much. I hooked the cattle loader onto my Lionel layout and backed the 725 into the siding so the cattle car was even with the chute, and I pressed the button and watched magnetic forces herd the cattle where I wanted them to go. This gave me intense pleasure, which I kept to myself. Years have passed since I've received a volume of Bible commentary for Christmas, and yet the old tradition continues in other forms. Every year I get at least one fabulous gift, such as a box of evil Dutch chocolates, such as a whoopee cushion, such as a wind-up car that a little man drives around and around in circles while a little woman jumps up and down and snaps pictures with a flash camera. It's Japanese. And then I get a couple of obligatory books. I used to get Winston Churchill and the Durants, those big, thick Western civilization books that the Book of the Month Club offered as lost leaders. But my friends and family have all been kicked out of the club for joining too often, and they now shop at discount bookstores instead. Every city has a bunch of book outlets where you can pick up, say, a reddish leather-bound copy of Moby Dick for $1.98. The price printed on the inside front flap is $39.95. Nobody buys this book and takes it home and sits down and reads it. It's a gift book, and it's all for show, including the list price. As a former English major, I'm a sitting duck for gift books, and in the past few years I've gotten Dickens, Thackeray, Smollett, Richardson, Emerson, Keats, Boswell, and the Brontes, all of them great. None of them ever read by me. All of them now on my shelf, looking at me and making me feel guilty. This year, I've written a book of my own, a thick socio-historical study of a Midwestern town and its complicated lifeways and lawways, which lies in bookstores waiting to snare the Christmas shopper. She wanders down the aisle past fiction, picking up and then putting down those light, dazzling books that people actually enjoy reading, the Collins and King and Schuller and Presley books, and finally winds up in the American culture regional humor section, where mine is. She pages through it for a moment. It has heft, it has a preface, and it has footnotes, and the author appears out glumly from his photo like a man who could bore the eyeballs out of your head if you gave him a chance. She buys three copies, all of them gifts. I hope she doesn't send one to me.
0: I wonder if Garrison Keillor was ever given a puppy for Christmas.
2: This is the carol for the dog that long ago in Bethlehem saw shepherds running towards the town and followed them. He trotted stiffly at their heels. He sniffed the lambs that they were bringing. He heard the herald angels sing, yet did not know what they were singing. But only being a dog... He knew to follow when the family led to Egypt or to Nazareth. And no one said a word about the sharp-nosed dog who stuck close to the family then, and yet there must have been a dog. This is a song for him.
0: Amen. Gloria reading A Carol for the Dog by Sister Mary Stella At the heart of Worcester's celebrations of Christmas is of course the cathedral and sitting at the helm is the dean. I went to talk to the dean a little while ago about life behind those hallowed portals. Well, here we are in Worcester Cathedral. We're talking to the very Reverend Peter Atkinson, who's Dean of the Cathedral here. Peter, I suspect most people won't know a great deal about what a dean does. I wonder if you could give us an idea of your work here in Worcester. Well, Stephen, as the dean, it
4: means that I take the lead in the running of the cathedral. We have a body called the Dean and Chapter, and that's the governing body, that's the body in charge of the cathedral, responsible for its maintenance and its upkeep and everything that goes on inside it, and raising the money needed to make all that happen. It means that on a day-to-day basis I'm really the person
0: uh, in charge and making sure the whole thing works smoothly. The cathedral, of course, is a great historical building, and we were standing a few moments ago with your most illustrious client here, King John, but of course it's much more than that. Uh, Could you tell us how you see the cathedral relating to the community? Well, as you say, it is a great place of history, and that's uh, one
4: of the reasons that people come here from, indeed, all over the world, um, and it plays a very important part in the story of Worcester Um, it's more than that in all kinds of ways Uh, principally of course it's a place of worship and we have three or four services uh, here every day of the year some of them sung by our cathedral choir some of them said quietly in one or other of the chapels But prayer and worship is going on here every day and that's all open to the public and people can come and go and they can sit at the back and they can take part uh, as much or as little as they wish. So that's one very important way in which we relate to the general public. It's also a place which is a centre of many community activities of one kind or another. Uh, Many of those are musical. We have many concerts and recitals. They may be exhibitions of one kind or another. Many people will know about our Christmas tree festival. We do a lot of work with schools and it's our aspiration that every school child in Worcestershire, at some point in their school days, will have had the opportunity to have a visit here. We know that we've had a place of Christian worship on this site since the uh, late seventh century, and a church, no doubt a very simple church, but it was a cathedral, it was the bishop's church, has been more or less on this site since then. Uh, In later Saxon times, then uh, refounded as a Benedictine monastery by St. Oswald, and a new, much larger Saxon Cathedral built then, in the 10th century. Then again in the 11th century, when St. Wolfston was Bishop, after the Norman Conquest, that Saxon Cathedral was pulled down and an even larger Norman Cathedral was built, more or less occupying the footprint of the present building. Over the course of the later Middle Ages, that building again was systematically rebuilt in the Gothic style so that what you see today looks like a Gothic cathedral of the 13th and 14th centuries, though in fact it's a reworking of a much older building. If you go down into the crypt, then you can see the most substantial survival from the Romanesque, the Norman Cathedral. We see there a a perfect bit of Norman architecture of the late 11th century.
0: I act as one of the chaplains here, so
4: it's, it's uh, always nice to come into the cathedral. From time to time I do take uh, a turn myself on the rotor, so I then see the cathedral in, uh, in a very different way. Instead of walking through it, as I quite often do in a bit of a hurry because I'm late for a meeting, I have the time just to wander around, uh, to enjoy the building for its own sake, uh, to talk to some of the visitors find out a bit of their stories, where they've come from. Uh, And sometimes there's somebody with some need, some practical need. And as you would also know, Stephen, from your share in this work, that's a very valuable thing, an important thing. I think in our busy world there are not many quiet spaces where people can
0: come and sit and reflect And and of course we have our our Worcester Pilgrim who's quite a unique figure I think. Yes indeed, Uh, it's a
4: fascinating story. Back in the 1980s and 90s when the cathedral was undergoing um, a huge restoration program which began with the tower and there were serious anxieties about the safety of the tower and a huge amount of work to make it safe. I'm delighted to say it is safe and the whole cathedral is now in as good and sound a condition as it's probably ever been at any time in its history but it was a time of um, uh, restoration, and in the course of the work, uh, the floor was taken up under the tower and the body, the skeleton of a pilgrim was discovered. No one knew he was there. Uh, we know he's a pilgrim because of his boots and his staff and uh, it was perfectly clear that this was a pilgrim who had come from or been to uh, Compostela, the great pilgrimage centre in northern Spain where thousands of people still go every year. A little more research has given us a probable identification. He may be somebody called Robert Sutton, whom we know of as a citizen of Worcester in the 15th century, uh, who was a pilgrim to Compostela and it may very well be that this uh, is where he was buried in his pilgrim boots um the boots and the staff are on display he himself robert if that's who he is was uh, reburied where he was originally buried but it is possible for people to come and view his uh, his staff and his boots and uh, read a little bit about him
0: in the crypt so the place has been a place of pilgrimage for all those hundreds of years and i'm aware how much the cathedral does to uh, welcome them that's very much down to you peter and the uh, members of the chapter and also the hundreds of volunteers who work here uh, throughout the year. So thank you very much for telling us a bit about your work uh, and the life of this cathedral church. Thank you very much. Jigou's Toccata was played there by Michael Chopin. Well, it wasn't a pilgrimage that called Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, but, as you may remember, the census. Godfrey Rust tells the story in verse. Barney.
1: Midnight in Bethlehem, 0 AD. One or two people in difficulty. Out on the street with a donkey and wife, Joseph had reached a bad point in his life with the kind of a problem that won't go away. A woman in labour and nowhere to stay. Now, the root of it all when you boiled the thing down was too many people in too small a town. When they dreamed up the plan of administration for a poll tax on the whole Jewish nation, only a bureaucrat somewhere like Rome would send everyone back to their ancestors' home. For little old Bethlehem wasn't designed to cater for David's prolific line. Still the problem was there and he couldn't disown it. They'd left it too late and Joseph had blown it. If they'd finished the packing the evening before and not gone back to check that they'd locked the front door if they'd not missed the turning at that roundabout, if they'd filled up the donkey before they set out, if they hadn't agreed to call in and see all of Mary's relations at Bethany, or if only he'd booked by Israeli Express. That would have done nicely, but this was a mess. No room at the inn, no room anywhere. They gave him the only place they could spare. And the promised Messiah was born that night on the floor of a stable without any light, where they cut the cord and cleaned up the mess and wrapped him in somebody's work-a-day dress. And while Mary slept there, exhausted and cold, Joseph sat by, feeling helpless and old. This wasn't the way he had thought it would be when the angel had told him that destiny chose them to look after the Holy One. No, this was a farce what God had done, was to trust the care of the Saviour instead to a man who could not even find him a bed. If only he planned it more carefully then, if he only could go back and do it again. He turned round in his mind the way he had blundered, then he looked at the infant and suddenly wondered. If it all was a lie, if he was a fool, and the object of everyone's ridicule, if the dreams of the angels were tricks and not what they promised to be, and his anger grew hot when the shepherds burst in all breathless and wild and stopped in their tracks when they saw the child. They shifted their gaze from the baby's bed and their eyes met his and he nodded his head, standing awkwardly, not knowing quite what to do. Now they all knew for certain the story was true. They stayed there for minutes. It might have been years. Not one of them spoke. Their hopes and their fears were gathered around this helpless God as their minds tried to grasp what it meant. Where he stood, Joseph was silent, as finally he saw that this was how it was planned to be, that the smell and the dark and the dirt and the pain were not Joseph's mistake, but God's choice. As the rain ran down on Bethlehem, Joseph knew that humanity would be saved, despite all it might do. He could not control it. He did not understand. He felt like a baby himself in God's hand. He thought of his anger and flushed now with shame. He remembered the angel had said that his name would be Jesus. God saves. He glanced up and saw that the shepherds had gone. Day had dawned. From the floor, Mary gazed at him, quizzical on her straw bed, the tiny godchild cried out to be fed joseph moved to the business of the new day gave the child to his mother and the
0: donkey some hay garrison keeler mentioned little benny making the best of christmas in an east london slum molly hughes a turn-of-the-century educator and author had herself had a victorian childhood and in later life was keen to show that Victorian children were not all as desperate as Benny, and wrote of Christmas in London in the 1870s.
3: Nowadays it is difficult to realise that no Christmas preparations were made until the week before the day itself. All our excitement was packed into a short space. The boys were on holiday and all over the place. Mother was mostly in the kitchen, presiding over mincemeat and puddings. "'I was set to clean currants, squeeze lemons, and cut up candied peel. "'Barnholt lent a hand at chopping the suet, "'but kept making raids on the lumps of sugar tucked away in the candied peel, "'which he assured me were very hard and nasty in the mincemeat, "'but had no ill effects on him. "'Christmas Eve was the day we liked best. "'The morning was a frenzied rush for last rehearsals, "'last posting of cards, last buying of presents.' My father came home early, laden with parcels. The tea-table was resplendent with bonbons, sweets and surprise cakes with icing on the top and threepenny bits inside. The usual bread-and-butter-first rule was set aside, and we all ate and talked and laughed to our heart's content. Then followed the solemn ascent to the study for the play. Personally, I was thankful when this nerve strain was over and we all crowded down into the breakfast parlour. Here, earlier in the day, Mother and I had arranged the presents, a little pile for each, and we all fell upon them with delight. We were never fussed with a Christmas tree or stockings or make-believe about Santa Claus. Perhaps we were too hard-headed. Perhaps Mother considered that waking up in the small hours to look at stockings was a bad beginning for an exciting day. As it was, we had a nice time before bed for peeping into our new books and gloating over all the fresh treasures. Christmas Day itself followed a regular ritual. The traditional dinner of turkey and plum pudding and dessert, fruit and nuts, was followed by a comatose afternoon, during which Barnhold cooked chestnuts incessantly on the bars of the grate, tossing them to us as they were done.
0: A Christmas steeped in tradition. Molly Hughes writes that Christmas Eve was her family's favourite and it's possible that she was acquainted with our next piece written some 40 years earlier and attributed to the American writer Clement Clarke Moore A Visit from St Nicholas better known as The Night Before Christmas Barney
1: It was the night before Christmas when all through the house not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St Nicholas soon would be there. The children were nestled all snug in their beds while visions of sugar plums danced in their heads. and mamma in her kerchief and I in my cap had just settled our brains for a long winter's nap. When out on the lawn there arose such a clatter... I sprang from the bed to see what was the matter. Away to the window I flew like a flash, tore open the shutters and threw up the sash. The moon on the breast of the new-fallen snow gave the lustre of midday to objects below, when what to my wondering eyes should appear but a miniature sleigh and eight tiny reindeer. With a little old driver so lively and quick, I knew in a moment it must be St Nick. More rapid than eagles, his courses they came, and he whistled and shouted and called them by name. Now Dasher, now Dancer, now Prancer and Vixen, on Comet, on Cupid, on Donner and Blitzen, to the top of the porch, to the top of the wall, now dash away, dash away, dash away all. As dry leaves that before the wild hurricane fly, when they meet with an obstacle, mount to the sky... So up to the housetop the coursers they flew with the sleigh full of toys and St Nicholas too. And then in a twinkling I heard on the roof the prancing and pawing of each little hoof. As I drew in my head and was turning around, down the chimney St Nicholas came with a bound. He was dressed all in fur from his head to his foot and his clothes were all tarnished with ashes and soot. A bundle of toys he had flung on his back and he looked like a peddler just opening his pack. His eyes, how they twinkled, his dimples, how merry. His cheeks were like roses, his nose like a cherry. His droll little mouth was drawn up like a bow, and the beard of his chin was as white as the snow. The stump of a pipe he held tight in his teeth, and the smoke it encircled his head like a wreath. He had a broad face and a little round belly that shook when he laughed like a bowlful of jelly. and away they all flew like the down of a thistle. But I heard him exclaim ere he drove out of sight,
0: Happy Christmas to all, and to all, a good night. Coming up, more Christmas bonbons, including a poem by Thomas Hardy, another monologue from Stanley Holloway, and a mini-audio drama written especially for this festive edition of the magazine. Now, although you may well be familiar with Richmore Crompton's William stories, you're less likely to be familiar with her writing for a more adult readership. In 1922, she produced a short story called The Christmas Present, read for us now by Gloria.
2: Mary Clay looked out of the window of the old farmhouse. The view was dreary enough, hill and field and woodland bare, colourless, mist-covered, with no other house in sight. She had never been a woman to crave for company. She liked sewing. She was passionately fond of reading. She was not fond of talking. Probably she could have been very happy at Croom Farm, alone. Before her marriage, she had looked forward to the long evenings with her sewing and reading. She knew that she would be busy enough in the day, for the farmhouse was old and rambling, and she was to have no help in the housework. But she looked forward to quiet, peaceful, lamplit evenings, and only lately, after ten years of married life, had she reluctantly given up the hope of them. For peace was far enough from the old farm kitchen in the evening. It was driven away by John Clay's loud voice, raised always in orders or complaints or in the stumbling, incoherent reading aloud of his newspaper. Mary was a silent woman herself and a lover of silence, but John liked to hear the sound of his voice. He liked to shout at her, to call for her from one room to another. Above all, he liked to hear his voice reading the paper out loud to her in the evening, She dreaded that most of all. It had lately seemed to jar on her nerves till she felt she must scream aloud. His voice going on and on, raucous and sing-song, became unspeakably irritating. His Mary summoning her from her household work to wherever he happened to be. His get-my-slippers or bring-me-my-pipe exasperated her almost to the point of rebellion. "'Get your own slippers,' had trembled on her lips, "'but had never passed them, "'for she was a woman who could not bear anger. "'Noise of any kind appalled her. "'She had borne it for ten years. "'So surely she could go on with it. "'Yet today, as she gazed hopelessly at the wintry countryside, "'she became acutely conscious that she could not go on with it. "'Something must happen. "'Yet what was there that could happen?' It was Christmas next week. She smiled ironically at the thought. Then she noticed the figure of her husband coming up the road. He came in at the gate and ran to the side door. Mary. She went slowly in answer to the summons. He held a letter in his hand. Met the postman, he said. From your aunt. She opened the letter and read it in silence. Both of them knew quite well what it contained. ''She wants us to go over for Christmas again,'' said Mary. He began to grumble. ''She's as deaf as a post. She's most as deaf as her mother was. She ought to know better than to ask folks over when she can't hear a word anyone says.'' Mary said nothing. He always grumbled about the invitation at first, but really he wanted to go. He liked to talk with her uncle. He liked the change of going down to the village for a few days and hearing all its gossip. He could quite well leave the farm to the hands for that time. The crew deafness was proverbial. Mary's great-grandmother had gone stone deaf at the age of 35. Her daughter had inherited the affliction, and her granddaughter, the aunt with whom Mary had spent her childhood, had inherited also "'at exactly the same age.' "'All right,' he said at last, grudgingly, "'as though in answer to her silence. "'We'd better go. Right and say we'll go.' "'It was Christmas Eve. "'They were in the kitchen of her uncle's farmhouse. "'The deaf old woman sat in her chair by the fire-knitting. "'The two men stood in the doorway. "'Mary sat at the table, looking aimlessly out of the window.' Outside, the snow fell in blinding showers. Inside, the fire gleamed onto the copper pots and pans, the crockery on the old oak dresser, the hams hanging from the ceiling. Suddenly, James turned. Jane, he said. The deaf woman never stirred. Jane! Still there was no response upon the enigmatic old face by the fireside. Jane! Jane! She turned slightly towards the voice. Get them photos from upstairs to show John, he bawled. What about boats, she said. Photos, roared her husband. Coats, she quavered. Mary looked from one to the other. The man made a gesture of irritation and went from the room. He came back with a pile of picture postcards in his hand. "'It's quicker to do a thing oneself,' he grumbled. "'They're what my brother sent from Switzerland, where he's working now. "'It's a fine land to judge from the views of it.' "'John took them from his hand. "'She gets worse,' he said, nodding towards the old woman. "'She was sitting, gazing at the fire, her lips curved in a curious smile. "'Her husband shrugged his shoulders. "'Aye, she's nigh as bad as her mother was, and her grandmother.' "'Aye, it takes longer to tell her to do something than to do it myself. "'And deaf folks get a bit stupid too. "'They're best let alone.' The other man nodded and lit his pipe. Then James opened the door. "'The snow's stopped,' he said. "'Shall we go to the end of the village and back?' The other nodded and took his cap from behind the door. A gust of cold air filled the room as they went out. "'Mary took a paper-backed book from the table "'and came over to the fireplace. "'Mary,' she started, It "'not the sharp, querulous voice of the deaf old woman. "'It was more like the voice of the young aunt "'whom Mary remembered in childhood. "'The old woman was leaning forward, looking at her intently. "'Mary, a happy Christmas to ye, "'and as if in spite of herself, Mary answered in her ordinary low tones. The same to you, Auntie. Thank ye, thank ye. Mary gasped. Aunt, can you hear me speaking like this? The old woman laughed, silently, rocking to and fro in her chair as if with pent up merriment of years. Yes, I can hear ye, child. I've always heard ye. Mary clasped her hand eagerly. Then You're cured, Aunt. Aye, I'm cured as far as there ever was anything to be cured. You, I was never deaf, child, nor never will be, please God. I've took you all in fine. Mary stood up in bewilderment. You, never deaf? The old woman chuckled again. No, nor my mother, nor her mother neither. Mary shrank back from her. ''I don't know what you mean,'' she said unsteadily. ''Have you been pretending?'' ''I'll make you a Christmas present of it, dear,'' he said the old woman. ''My mother made me a Christmas present of it when I was your age, and her mother made her one. I haven't a lass of my own to give it to, so I give it to you. It can come on quite sudden-like, if you want it, and then you can hear what you choose.'' and not hear what you choose, do you see? She leant nearer and whispered, You're shut out of it all, of having to fetch and carry for them, answer their daft questions and run their errands like a dog. I've watched you, my lass. You don't get much peace, do you? Mary was trembling. Oh, I, I don't know what to think, she said. "I, I couldn't do it. "'Do what you like,' said the old woman. "'Take it as a present anyways. "'The crew deafness for a Christmas present,' she chuckled. "'Use it or not as you like. "'You'll find it main amusing anyways.' "'And into the old face there came again that curious smile "'as if she carried in her heart some jest fit for the gods on Olympus. "'The door opened suddenly with another gust of cold air.' and the two men came in again, covered with fine snow. I'll not do it, whispered Mary, trembling. We didn't get far, it's coming on again, remarked John, hanging up his cap. The old woman rose and began to lay the supper, silently and deftly, moving from cupboard to table without looking up. Mary sat by the fire, motionless and speechless, her eyes fixed on the glowing coals. "'Any signs of the deafness in her?' whispered James, looking towards Mary. "'It came on my wife just when she was at that age.' "'Aye, so I've heard,' then he said loudly. "'Mary!' A faint pink colour came into her cheeks, but she did not show by look or movement that she had heard. James looked significantly at her husband. The old woman stood still for a minute, with a cup in each hand, and smiled her slow, subtle smile.
0: Well, I promised you another Stanley Holloway monologue, and this, The Street Watchman's Story, was written by Charles J. Winter back in 1910, when Holloway was at the beginning of his theatrical career. Some chaps get the fat and some chaps get the lean when they start on their journey through life. Some make pots of money by being hempies and some gets it by taking a wife. Some learns a good trade such as dustman or sweep. Wish the same I'd have done if I'd knowed. But the special profession I've drifted to now is minding an hole in the road. As a rule it's a nice, quiet, comfortable job, but there's times when I've hated the work. For instance, I once had to go Christmas Day on a job which I'd tried hard to shirk. I minded that, old sir, the whole blessed day till my dinner and tea time had gone. And my Christmas dinner, if any was left, I should have when relieved later on. At home we'd some friends and we'd got a big goose and I'd ordered a half tonne of coal. Yet here I was sitting at 7pm, a-shivering in front of me old. And I thought of them all making merry at home, stuffed with goose from their head to their toes. They'd just about leave me a cut off the beak or the end of the parson's nose. And I sat quite despondent and dozed half asleep. I was feeling quite umpy and sore. When from one of the big houses just on my right, a swell flunky stepped out through the door. He came straight to me and he said with a bow, which made his gold lace gleam and shine, the Countess's compliments, and as you're alone, she'll be pleased if you'll step in and dine. Well, I very near dropped to the ground with surprise, for it wasn't a safe thing to do. What if thieves came and pinched a great heap of them stones, or opt up with a drainpipe or two? Then I thought of the Countess's kindness of heart, how she thought of me lowly outside. So I scraped the clay off of me boots with a spade, and I followed the flunky inside. And there sat the countess, all merry and bright, with diamonds and jewels all aglow, in a silk dress, which must have cost nigh twenty pound, though there wasn't much of it, you know. Her husband, the Viscount, was there at her side, while the waiters flew round with a whiz, and in half a jiff I was seated with them, uh, eating and shifting the fizz. The Viscount, he drank to my jolly good health, as he took from his wine glass a pool. I only just nodded. I couldn't say much, for me mouth, like me art, was too full. When we'd finished, us gents all put on a cigar, and the perfume was simply sublime. By the bands that was on them, why, I guarantee, they must have cost fourpence a time. Then the ladies, they starts playing kiss in the ring, and the countess enjoyed the game too. When she gets in the ring, she just turns straight to me, and she says, Mr Nobs." I'll have you. I didn't know what was me head or my heels. It was like being in fairyland. But I threw down me smoke and I wiped me moustache, just like this, with the back of me hand. She put up her lips looking saucy and sweet, and I blushed as towards her I stole. I bent forward and then... I woke up just in time, or I might have fell clean down the hole. Thomas Hardy wrote this next piece about the persistence of faith, even though he had lost his many years before. Christine.
3: Christmas Eve and twelve of the clock. Now they're all on their knees, an elder said as we sat in a flock by the embers in hearthside ease. We pictured the meek, mild creatures where they dwelt in their strawy pen, nor did it occur to one of us there to doubt they were kneeling then so fair a fancy few would weave in these years. Yet I feel if someone said on Christmas Eve, Come, see the oxen kneel in the lonely Barton by yonder coombe our childhood used to know, I should go with him in the gloom, hoping it might be so.
0: First published in 1780, The Twelve Days of Christmas is thought to have been intended as a game, a Christmas game of memory. But what if one's true love took the song literally? Imagine the consequences. Writer and broadcaster Brian Sibley did. As yet another partridge in a pear tree, it turned into a Christmas classic.
2: My very dearest Algy, how can I begin to thank you for your charming gift? What luxury! My very own pear tree, with that dear little pheasant in it. Was it supposed to be a partridge? You really are a foolish boy. Actually, the birdie isn't wildly attractive, but the pear tree should be lovely when pears are in season again. Thank you, my darling, all my love forever. Your own affectionate Cynthia. My dearest Algie, you are quite impossible, my love. The turtle doves are adorable. They're already cooing away like anything. And I must say their amorous behaviour leaves very little to the imagination. But I expect they will settle down with time. Thank you, my sweeting. Affectionately yours, Cynthia. P.S. I almost forgot to thank you for the second partridge in pear tree thing. It balances up the other side of the fireplace so nicely. Dearest Algernon, you know, Poppet, you are simply going too, too far. Your latest gift has just been delivered. What an imaginative boy you are to think of sending me something as unusual as three French hens. I'm only sorry that I hadn't told you that I am allergic to eggs. Never mind, I can always sell some to the neighbours, who incidentally have been much entertained by the sight of the postman struggling along each morning with pear trees. Much love, Cynthia. <coughs> Dearest Algernon, I suppose it's silly of me, but I am seriously beginning to wonder whether you aren't trying to get me to start an Avery. "'Your four collie birds have just arrived, "'and could more aptly be described as callie birds, "'since that is what they seem to do best. "'Perhaps you could let me know whether collie birds are in the laying business "'or whether they are intended for human consumption. "'Mrs Beaton is, I find, surprisingly silent on the matter. "'I can honestly say, Algernon, "'that I'd always thought birds were rather pleasant little creatures.' until you gave me this opportunity of observing them at such close quarters. Love, Cynthia. P.S. I do hope you got a reasonable discount on all the pear trees. Algernon, thank you for your latest gift of five curtain rings. A somewhat curious present, but nevertheless... A refreshing change from all those very pretty but somewhat noisy birds you will keep sending me. I doubt if I should have brought so large a turkey for Christmas, had I known what you had in mind. Could we ease up a bit on the fowl, do you think? Cordially, Cynthia. Dear Algernon Fotherington Smythe, I see we are back with the birds again. "'Your six geese a laying have just arrived "'and are happily doing so for all they're worth. "'I rather thought I'd mention to you how it was with me and eggs. "'Thank you for putting me right about the curtain rings. "'I never could tell the difference between brass and gold. "'Of course, I am very pleased that you should have thought "'of sending me another five, just so that I have one for every finger.' But as I now have more hens, doves and partridges than I rightly know how to cope with, and as they aren't too fussy about personal hygiene, I seldom seem to have my hands out of a bucket of water long enough to try them on. Yours, Cynthia B. Dear Mr Fotherington Smythe, I have just succeeded in accommodating your seven swans a-swimming in my bath which was no mean achievement when one considers the number of pear trees on the landing. Regrettably, the geese got to the rings before I could, so that's probably the last we've seen of them. Would I could say the same for the geese? I must now ask you to desist from sending me any more of these well-intentioned but slightly impracticable gifts. Cynthia Bracegirdle. Mr Fotherington Smythe, Fresh milk is one thing. Eight enormous Frisians in the drawing room is something else altogether. True, the milkmaids have a certain rustic charm, but you wouldn't believe how much they eat. You may also care to note that my bath has only so much room in it for swans with a seemingly insatiable urge to be a-swimming, and it will definitely not hold 14 of them. Take that from one who has tried. Please call a halt to this absurd behaviour. Miss Cynthia Bracegirdle. (laughs) Mr Smythe, thanks to your weird sense of humour, my house is now in utter chaos. As if it wasn't bad enough having 16 cows producing milk by the gallon, we now have nine ladies, as you amusingly call them, dancing here, there and everywhere one of whom seems to be working out a somewhat extraordinary routine involving several doves and a goose. The most charitable view I can take of your actions is that you are out of your tiny mind. Enough's enough. Pack it in, Miss Cynthia Bracegirdle. P.S. Fortunately, one of the partridges has just drowned itself in a bucket of milk. "'Unspeakable wretch! Your misguided generosity has apparently now led you to suppose "'that I could find some use for ten lords a-leaping. "'They might lend a hand with cleaning up all the rancid milk and birdlime, "'if they'd stop leaping around after the dancing girls for five minutes. "'I understand the entire neighbourhood is now up in arms about it all.' and the Residents' Association has sent a petition to the local Member of Parliament. For your information, I have now reached the end of my tether, which is more than can be said for those damn cows of yours. Sea Brace Girdle, Miss. Cretinous Toad! Have you got even the remotest idea what 11 pipers piping sounds like at 2 o'clock in the morning? Of course, it only adds very slightly to the hideous cacophony of noise that I must daily endure. I swear there's more mooing, cooing, honking, clucking and calling here than in the zoological gardens. Your latest shipment of lords, ladies and livestock is now settled into the furore. One good thing, at least, is that the latest influx of birds have put the cows off giving milk. I can hear them now uprooting the pear trees in the orchard I once called a living room. My landlord has taken out an eviction order against me, as he claims, somewhat surprisingly, that the terms of my lease do not cover utilization of the premises as a menagerie, dancing school, small holding, or annex to the House of Lords. CB. PS. Please be advised that all future correspondence between us will be handled by my solicitors, Messrs. Sue, Grabbit and Run.
1: From Messrs. Sue, Grabbit and Run, solicitors. Dear Mr. Smythe, re Miss Cynthia Bracegirdle, deceased. We are the executors of the estate of the above-named deceased, and are writing to acknowledge receipt of your recent delivery of Twelve Drummers Drumming. You will no doubt be distressed to learn that shortly after the arrival of these gentlemen, our client, in what must be described as a somewhat deranged state of mind, travelled to Eastbourne and threw herself off the top of Beachy Head. Before taking this step, however... She left instructions with ourselves for the adding of a codicil to her last will and testament, under which you become her sole beneficiary and legatee. I am, therefore, arranging for the following items to be delivered to you later this day. Twelve drummers drumming. Twenty-two pipers piping. Thirty lords leaping. Thirty-six ladies dancing. Forty maids a milking, forty two swans a swimming, forty two geese a laying, forty gold rings, thirty six collie birds, thirty French hens, twenty two turtle doves, and eleven partridges, with twelve accompanying pear trees. With our sincere congratulations on your inheritance and assuring you of our best attention at all times. <laughs>
0: <Lovely>. <laughs> that's really that's good. <laughs> this is jolly good. <laughs> we open this magazine with a carol sung by the choir of Hallow Church. One of the choir members is herself partially cited. John Plush asked Anne Briggs how her impairment affects her participation in the
5: group. Anne, how long have you been singing with the choir? Uh, I think about 20 years. Uh, when I started, I was able to read large print. Unfortunately, now I've lost all the central vision, so I have to rely either on my memory or on a very clever little device that I had from the RNIB. Um, I scanned the hymns onto my computer and then with the help of Guide the software which speaks I can then record them and try to sing them Do you have to learn all the words then? Uh, Well when it came to carols having sung them for 70 years odd I do know them all so that was no problem What do you get out of singing with a choir like this? Oh, I thoroughly enjoy singing. Because of my visual impairment, there's no way I could sing with the um, festival choir. But uh, they're willing to let me go along here, as it's not too serious. (laughs) What's your favourite carol? Probably Silent Night. Why is that? Well, probably because I can speak German and uh, did teach German for many years. Does that carol work better for in German than in English? I think it does, yes, yes. Especially this translation we used was fine, but some of them are are not good. But no I think because it was originally written in German, it does sound better in German. Anne Briggs, thank you very much indeed. Thank you.
0: Silent Night in the English translation, sung by Anne Briggs and the choir of St Philip and St James Church in Hallow. We'll be hearing a little more from them later. But first, Alan Corran on Christmas shopping.
1: Barney. I stand today in great debt to Dr. David Lewis. What about it, you cry? Every man in the country stands in great debt to him. He's the brilliant psychologist who last week declared that all men risk instant heart attacks if they try to do any Christmas shopping. Just walking past Selfridge's window induces male stress levels normally recorded only when a tornado pilot spots a missile in his mirror or a copper finds himself staring down the sawn-off end of something unpredictable. So then, since Dr Lewis has told all the nation's wives that if they don't want to become all the nation's widows, they must tuck up all the nation's husbands in front of a roaring fire with a magnum of claret and a pile of ham sandwiches, no crusts, while they themselves rush about accumulating the yuletide gubbins, what makes my debt so special? What makes it so special is that Dr Lewis has done not only all this for all men, but also, for me, solved a 2,000-year-old riddle. The solution is contained in a sidebar to his report, stating that when men actually steal themselves to do Christmas shopping, they do it in order to reduce their agitation at the last minute, buying the first thing they see, which at last sheds all the light we scholars have hitherto sought on the mysterious case of the three kings of Orient R and the bizarre gifts they carried with them to Bethlehem. I realise, of course, that for non-scholars among you, the location of Orient R is itself a mystery which has annually nagged at you down the long caroling years. But we dabber hands at exegesis and are now firmly convinced that Orient R is a rhyme-enforced abbreviation of Orient R Us, a supermarket chain specialising in everything from brass gongs and kaftans to spice racks and hookahs. Just the sort of portmanteau establishment to appeal to frantic last-minute mail shoppers, stuck with the problem of gifts for a faraway family of which they knew little. Oh, sure, they would have begun, like us, by coming up with lots of imaginative possibilities. They'd have sat down weeks before with a papyrus pad and a nice sharp quill. And Caspar having pointed out that Joseph was a carpenter, Melchior and Balthazar would doubtless have agreed that a state-of-the-art toolbox was just the job or a fabulous multi-purpose drill, possibly a folding workbench. Jot that down. Now, what about Mary? Lingerie is always a winner. You can't go wrong with a nighty or perhaps a peignoir. Perfect. She'll have the baby by then, of course. A wide choice there. Romper suits, mobiles, bouncer, pull-along duck. The list complete. They gird their loins and pop down to the shops. But, lo, there are windows full of 87 different sorts of toolbox and 23 assorted folding workbenches. There are lingerie emporia with a 1,001 nighties. Which material? Which colour? What's her size? You go in. No, you. Why me? What do I know about women's thingies? Let's get the baby's present first. Blimey, look at that. The place is packed. There must be a million screaming kids in there. I feel dizzy, Caspar. My heart's going like the clapper's milk. I've come out in a muck sweat, Balthazar. Tell you what, why don't we sit down somewhere Have a drink, too, possibly. It's no good rushing these things. We could do ourselves a mischief. We'll just sort ourselves out and come back later when it's not so busy. Yes, I'm up for that. Me too. Call a camel. So, do they go back? Of course they don't. On the way home, they pass their local branch of Orient R Us. Oh, look, spot on. We can get everything we want here. So in they run.' And while they find, of course, no power tools, no nighties, no toys, there is gold, always an acceptable gift, Caspar, and frankincense. Can't go wrong with female fragrances, Melchior. And what's that box next to it? The label says myrrh. What's myrrh when it's at home, Balthazar? Who cares? What does it matter? He's only a kid.
0: (laughs) We heard earlier how the Victorians celebrated Christmas. Now let Alison Utley in her book, A Traveller in Time, whisk us back to an Elizabethan Christmas. Christine.
3: The great kitchen was decked with boughs of fir and scarlet-buried holly and many a bunch of bay. From a central hook in the beam hung a round bunch of holly and mistletoe intermingled with ribbons and garlands swung in loops across the walls. The kissing bunch Dame Cicely called the ball of berries and bade me beware of standing under it, for at Christmas every one, young lords and all, would clasp and kiss those maids they caught under its shadow. I noticed that Tabitha and Marjorie and Phoebe loitered much under the bunch that day. Then Aunt Cicely pulled herself up from her chair and got to the baking, for spiced breads were wanted – and I filled the bread oven with dry wood ready for her. There were chines and strings of hogs puddings to go to the cottages, and loaves of new bread for the widows, and venison haunches for the good men at the farms. All the village would come to the manor on Christmas Day, to eat roast beef and drink the mulled ale, and they would be asked to the hall to watch the yule log burn and drink healths, the poorer sorts and the barley ale, the farmers in sherry sack and canary wine. There would be church in the morning, and then the great feast. Each year a wild boar was sent by the Lord of Haddon, and from its flesh were made brawns and jellies, but the head and shoulders would be roasted in the kitchen and borne into the hall by the oldest man on the estate. Its head would be decked with a wreath of bay and rosemary. They would sing carols, And as the old man carried in the boar's head, he would sing in his piping ancient voice, The boar's head in hand bear I, bedecked with bays and rosemary, and I pray you, my masters all, be merry. And all would then join in with Quatestis in convivio.
0: Which means, I understand, however many you are at the feast. A gift for everyone. But who gives Santa Claus a Christmas gift? In our mini-drama this month, everyone receives a present, including Santa. We present Night Flight.
6: The Right Honourable Pamela Smithson, MP, at 28, the youngest ever Minister for Aviation, stared out over Westminster Bridge from the tall window of her imposing Victorian Gothic office. As a huge passenger jet thundered past overhead on its approach to Heathrow, she weighed up the chances of getting her inaugural bill through Parliament.
7: It won't be a popular move... But with health and safety and more flights over Christmas, they can't argue against it. And there's the revenue from the licences. Hello? Yes, Mother, it was from me. No, 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 just ignore it. Well, you see, I've got this new app on my phone. You just say the name of the person you want to contact and then dictate an email. And it automatically sends it straight away. You don't even need a proper email address. It's dead easy, only I haven't quite got the hang of it yet. No, no, I know you haven't got a goldfish called Hitler. I was talking to someone about the chief whip and pressed the button by mistake. No, don't worry, I'm fine. Yes, you too. Bye.
8: He's not the man I married. <laughs> that jovial, happy man, the kid's friend, telling jokes all time, always laughing. So happy. Always so happy. Not these days. Times change, I know. You have to move with times. Accept the change. But it can be hard to let go. He were good about young Nick starting up with drones. He could see benefits. Do job in less than half time. Always to write a dress. Just what Kitty wanted. Computer accurate. No reindeer to look after. And when you're his size, some of them chimneys can get a bit tight. <laughs> We've had some close calls. I don't mind telling you. But one of them drones, now they can nip down and up again in no time. Toys still have to be made,
9: of course.
8: But Youngster's got his own workforce to look
9: after that. I can retire now, Dad. I've got it all sorted. Suppliers all round world, millions of toys stored in hundreds of barns just like you. All selected by robot and delivered by drone. Put the feet up, Dad. Have a sherry. That deserves it. So he did. And now he
8: mops round the house all day, getting under my feet. Or down zoo, of course.
0: How much? I only wanted to see reindeer. Aye, you and everyone else. Here you are, Grandad. Join the queue. My word. (laughs) They love it, these kids. Reindeer like to see them too. I suppose it reminds them of the old days. Don't suppose we'll ever have grandkids? Not less young Nick gets a move on and settles down with someone real soon. And the old man shuffled off in the direction of Bradley Wildlife
6: Sanctuary's Christmas family fun queue.
7: seeing you and your constituents at the plenary session on Thursday. Best wishes, Pamela. To the Select Committee Chairman. Dear George, thanks for your work on the drone white paper. Can we get this through by Christmas? Pam. Christmas. A time for families. Some hope of that. Dear Santa, please send me a good man. Someone it's safe to... To love? Oh, did that get sent somewhere?
8: Dinner's nearly ready. Can you get plates out, Nick? Nick?
6: Nick didn't answer straight away. He was staring at the computer screen, puzzled.
0: What does the make of this? What? It's from some woman. Dear Santa, please send me a good man. Well, I've had some requests in my time, but... Who you say it's from? No idea. Never heard of her. Pamela someone. London. Westminster. Sent by my auto-voice email, it says. You get the weirdest spam, you. I don't know it's spam, Clary. Look at the bottom there. Palace of Westminster. That's Houses of Parliament.
8: And since when have you been getting emails from some floozy in Parliament? It's spam. Come and have your dinner, it'll get cold.
6: On Christmas Eve, Clary and Nick were having breakfast when the phone rang.
0: Now then, lad, is that you? Aye, Mother and me were just having... You what? They've never. But it's Christmas Eve. What shall I do? Right. Right. OK. I'll sort something out. All right, son. See thee tonight. That we young Nick. They've gone and banned out drones within 50 mile radius of any UK airport. Something to do with terrorism and danger to aircraft. But surely that's the old country, ain't it? So nobody in Britain can fly a drone ever again? He says you can do it, but only with a special licence issued by Ministry of Aviation.
7: Well, how long does that
0: take
8: to get a licence?
0: He says he's already wronged Ministry, left a message explaining like. But he reckons they'll not do out till after Christmas. So what's going
8: to happen? Don't they know that all presents have to go out tonight? It's Christmas Eve. If drones can't fly, kiddies won't get no
0: presents. He's got a plan, lass. Young Nick's got a plan.
9: Uh, hello. It's like this. I, um, I were very concerned to hear about current ban on drone flying throughout the UK. Does they not realise that all Christmas presents are delivered by drone these days and, and have been for the past five years? We um, we don't use reindeer anymore, you see. Just drones. Please, can you reverse the ban, or, or at least could you issue me with a temporary license, please, just for tonight? Like, the kiddies of Great Britain will thank you, as, as do I in anticipation. Uh, thank you. Goodbye. Oh, oh, it's Nick here, by back way. Thank you.
7: For heaven's sake. We all know there's no such thing as Santa, but really, drones delivering the children's Christmas presents. D'oh, humbug. What was his name? Nick Claus. D'oh, do me
6: a favour. She turned away from the machine and poured herself another coffee. But something in the voice of her caller remained with her. Some obscure empathy she couldn't identify. A warmth she had not encountered before. Nonsense, of course. It was just a message on the answering machine. But she couldn't bear to go home now to the empty house. Too many broken dreams. Not at Christmas. She sipped her coffee. It was going to be a long night.
0: Nick, I've picked up reindeer from zoo. While I get them out a trailer, does they want to open garage?
6: Young Nick pulled off the dusty tarpaulins and dragged his dad's old sleigh out of the garage. They harnessed up the excited reindeer and started to load the sleigh with the presents stored in the barn.
0: We'll have to get a move on, lad, if we're going to finish this before it gets light. Come on, Dasher, Dancer, Prancer. Vixen, are you ready? Comet, Cupid, Donna, Blitzen. All right, son, let's away!
6: They swooped and dived over purple-shadowed countryside and silent amber-jeweled cities delivering the brightly wrapped gifts, just as Santa has done for as long as we can remember. In a few hours, the sleigh was empty.
9: That's it, Dad. We've done it. I don't know what I'd have done without thee and the rusty old sleigh. It's
0: only rusty through lack of use. But then, oh, son, I've had a great time. Coming out with thee tonight just like we used to on sleigh, it's been best Christmas present they could have given me home, Dad? Aye, lad, but there's one small detour we have to make on way back.
6: They were over London, and below them glittered the Thames, languidly reflecting the lights of the embankment and the London Eye, finally coming to a halt perched on the roof of the Palace of Westminster.
0: Whoa there! Where are we going, Dad? Got a call to make, son. You should have gone afore we left. Not that sort of call wait here
6: and he disappeared down a highly decorated chimney stack
10: what on earth
0: oh oh, oh, sorry about this love hey i should be used to it by now who the blazes are you and how did you get in here well i come down chimney didn't i sorry we haven't been introduced Are you Pamela, Minister of, uh, what were it, uh, Aviation? I am. Don't tell me you're... Aye, lass! You didn't think I existed, did they? They should have believed stories. I should have had faith.
7: I've been told far too many stories by people who promised they'd be faithful.
0: Happen.
6: Santa looked back at the ornate and now rather sooty fireplace at the vaulted ceiling the panelled walls and the imposing mahogany desk.
0: That's done well for this end here, lass. Thank you. They sent me a note. Oh, no. Aye, they did. They said they wanted a man. Well, maybe, (laughs) but... But not a fat old git like me. Well, I I wouldn't exactly... Don't worry, lass. It's not me. Come on. Up there? But my clothes... I said, have faith.
6: High up on the spiky roof of the Houses of Parliament, young Nick turned to see his father helping a very attractive youngish woman in a business suit out of a chimney pot.
0: Hey up Nick, shove over. Come on lass, hop in. It's gonna be a great Christmas. Let us
10: away!
0: In Night Flight, the narrator was Jane Fares, Pamela was played by Pauline Beale, Clary by Evelyn Brock, Young Nick by Phil Lee, and Santa. Well, happened I can work that out for this end. that's it for this month so accompanied by the choir of St Philip and St James it's goodbye from Christine goodbye Gloria goodbye Barney goodbye and from me Stephen copying was done by David and Sylvia Day administration was by Carol Hartle and the decorations were hung up by John Plush it only remains for all of us on behalf of the Worcester Talking Magazine to wish you joy happiness and a very merry Christmas